Hi, this is Milt Rosenberg. Two separate guests today, uh, drawing from two separate uh, books. The first is Rich Rubino. The second is Todd Lindbergh. Uh, Rich Rubino has done a book titled The Political Bible of Humorous Quotations from American Politics. The second uh, by Todd Lindbergh is The Heroic Heart, Greatness, Ancient and Modern. Uh, and going directly to Rich Rubino, who's on the phone with us from someplace in Massachusetts. Uh, good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. Uh, the It's well known that humor is a great asset in politics if it's intentional, if you do it yourself. Uh, for example, JFK was famous for the quality of his so-called self-demeaning humor. But it's sometimes a liability if you stumble into something saying something funny because it reflects stupidity or uh, poor information or poor phraseology or uh, simply reveals too much about you that ought not to be revealed. Uh, you have essentially specialized in this new book upon the latter type of political humor, the political Bible of humorous quotations from American politics. Most of these were unintended, though a few perhaps were intended. I suppose John Nance Garner fully intended uh, what he said when he was asked about the vice presidency. You remember uh, his estimation of the vice presidency? Yes, his, his estimation was the vice presidency isn't worth um, isn't worth a bucket of warm spit, I believe, is what he said. It's funny with John Nance Garner because Garner had, had a lot of power. Remember, he was Speaker of the House of Representatives in, in, um, before he became vice president, and he enjoyed that job. He ran for president himself in 1932. He lost, and then he, became, he took the second prize as vice president, and he really didn't like the job too much. And interestingly, in 1940, when Franklin Roosevelt was running for a third term, John Nance Garner, who was, his, who was vice president, actually ran against him, as did James Farley, who was the head of the Democratic National Committee. So you had, essentially, the head of the Democratic National Committee and the, and the, and the, and the vice president of Franklin Roosevelt both running against Franklin Roosevelt for a third term. And, of course, FDR won that third term. Won it easily, as I remember it. Yes, he did, absolutely. It was just very, I think it was very interesting, because Farley, I mean, had been really kind of his... Um, you know, his, his mentor in many respects, and he's, he'd, he'd worked for him going back to when he was governor of New York, but he said that he didn't believe he should serve a third term. And John Nance Garner said that he, he came to be kind of almost an antagonist of FDR's New Deal. And when he ran against him, that was kind of his platform. He said that the Democratic Party had gotten away kind of the way, you know, when Al Smith, who was a 1928 nominee, who was a lot more conservative, he wanted to kind of go back to that, but the Democratic Party had already moved away from that, um, from that ideology. Obviously, if you're dealing with an expert, and you are an expert, on political parlance, then it's possible to try to stump the expert. So I'll throw you an occasional quiz question. What, oh, okay. What town did John Nance Garner come from? Uh, what town did he come from? Yeah. What's his hometown? Uh, I, I know it's in Texas. I don't know the name of the town. Uvalde. U-V-A-L-D-E. Okay. Uvalde. I, don't know, I don't know why I know that, but I'm sure it's true. Okay. <laughs> okay. I do. I will tell you this, though. I yeah. will tell you that he lived till he was ninety-nine years yeah, old, he was... and that um, John F. Kennedy, the day that he was assassinated, he called up. Um, John, he was actually he was in Dallas at the time. He mm -hmm. called up John Nance Garner to wish him a happy birthday. Now that's a wonderful fact. I did not know that. Here's something else. We you will recognize the speaker. Uh, to whom did he say this, and when? He says, "To be blunt, people would vote for me. They just would. Uh, why? Maybe because I'm so good looking." Uh, Larry King calls and says, do my show. I got my highest ratings when you're on. Yes, that is the, um, that is the epitome of modesty. We know it as Donald Trump. But what's, what's <laughs> unusual about that quotation? 
Um, I think it, well, I guess we don't, we know now that that's actually more um, prevalent. That's more or less you, Donald Trump's, um, that's more or less Donald Trump's kind of, you know, kind of his, his routine, I guess, now is to talk in that respect. But that was what he had said. Remember, he, had, he was considering running for president as the Reform Party nominee back in 2000. He said the Republican Party had gone yeah. too far right. That's what so, fascinated me about this quotation, because he said it not last week or last month. He said it in 1999 to Maureen Dowd who uh, worked, of course, and still does, more or less, for the New York Times. So he was uh, Trumpian way back uh, 19, rather 16 years ago. Oh, absolutely. I know. Well, from what I've heard, he was even going back to his college days, believe it or not, when he was at the Wharton School of Business on the first day, and the professor went around the classroom and said, you know, why are you all here? And people said, you know, I'm here for business. I'm here because I want to be a great businessman. And they went to Donald Trump, and Donald Trump said, I'm here because I want to be king of real estate. So, uh-huh. <laughs> so this is this uh, this shall we say lack of modesty in this certain bluster is not a uh, is not a new thing with uh, with the Donald. It seems uh, that that is exactly the case. So that's what amused me about that quotation. Now, from here on, I'm going to direct you to pages okay. in your book and ask you to read a particular selection, and then we might do a little adumbration, a little elaboration uh, of the story. And Absolutely. here we go to page twenty four. And you commit the one error of your book uh, in uh, is it that I could find, uh, and I'm always very, very well primed to find errors if I possibly can, because <laughs> I am a college professor, and yep. that's that's what we that's what we do with other people's work. Read the one um, at the bottom of the first column. Roosevelt faces cannibalism charge. Roosevelt faces cannibalism charge. After reading a column by the esteemed essayist H. L. Mencken about the opportunism of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, liberal leader and clergyman, Gerald Smith, Gerald L.K. L. K. Smith commented if he, referring to Roosevelt, became convinced tomorrow that coming out for cannibalism would get him votes, he so, that would get him the votes he sorely needs, he would begin fattening a missionary in the White House backyard come Wednesday. Interesting quotation and from a very interesting source. What is curious about this, and frankly, uh, sir, where you've made an error, and oh, I don't, yeah. I don't seriously chide you for it. How would you necessarily know this? You're a younger man, and that was a long time ago. Uh, but uh, Gerald L. K. Smith, whom you identify as a liberal and a clergyman, was indeed a clergyman, but was the exact opposite of a liberal. He was an American fascist. He literally read, or rather, led what was essentially a fascist sort of party, and then he was one of the lead figures in the America First. Movement. He was openly anti-Semitic, uh, and uh, was much condemned for that, and also uh, somewhat favored for that in those days way back in the 1930s and the 1940s. Look it up. I will do that. I will do that. I'm, I'm absolutely certain of that. And in fact, to double-check my own memory, I did look it up. Um, okay. And uh, you'll find that that is the case for Gerald L. K. Smith. What made you identify him as a liberal? Where'd you get that? Um, I, that was, that was my perception that he, that he was, I knew that he was, I, I did know he was part of the America Force first movement, but I thought that I know that also that Gerald Ford was part of that. But in terms of where I thought that he was from the liberal, I guess I was thinking of in terms of Father Coughlin and, um, that kind Who of, that, also that, was a famous anti-Semite. But they, but he was also kind of liberal on some domestic issues. So that's where I was getting that from. I well, Coughlin was both liberal and then very conservative. He, uh, uh did a newspaper. Uh, titled Social Justice, which appeared as a weekly. And uh, he was closely tied, in fact, to Henry Ford. He was located uh, at a particular 
a church in Royal Oak, Michigan. Coughlin yep. was. And that's not at all far away from Dearborn and thus from the seat of the Ford Empire. Uh, Ford, of course, was a famous anti-Semite <clears throat> who uh, published the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, Zion famous right. forgery, uh, uh, in his own newspaper, the Dearborn Independent, and then sent it around in, uh, the country for years and years and years. Um, and uh, as I say, uh, uh, Gerald L. K. Smith and Ford were friends, and uh, uh, and Coughlin, or rather, I, as I was saying, Coughlin was a friend of uh, of Ford's, not uh, Gerald L. K. I don't know whether they even knew each other. They probably did, though. But Coughlin uh, had some liberal notions and indeed favored Roosevelt at the beginning, but then turned against the New Deal and saw the evil hand of Jewish Wall Street bankers as having taken control and wrecking and ruining the country. And he carried on about that for years, so much so that the church considered squelching him and taking away his parish. Though finally they simply ordered him off the radio, which he which order he refused to accept, until eventually he sort of petered out. Um, by the time the war was over, and uh, he just ran his parish and uh, and then quietly died. But yep. um, that is uh, Father Coughlin. Well, we're into something interesting at the very beginning, more than I expected. Yes, and also, um, and I mean, certainly, I wouldn't call him an anti-Semite, but also uh, Huey Long was another one who had supported for Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal originally and became, I actually supported him in 32, became very disaffected with it and was actually considering running for president against him in 36. He was he, Of course, he was assassinated at the state capitol in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, but he was he would have run essentially to Franklin Delano Roosevelt's left. He was more of kind of, he, he, he thought that the New Deal did not go far enough and there was actually a um, kind of an internecine warfare within the liberal intelligentsia between those who supported the What New was the title of the book that he did? Every Man a King or something very much like Every that? Every Man a King, yes. Yeah. That was his, that was his, um, that was his, that was his song as well. I mean, then there's a song, you know, Every Man a King, and they called him uh, the Kingfish. They did indeed. Um, and um, did you know, in fact, if, if you deal with stuff like this, you all sorts of trivia come to mind. Oh, great. Uh, and what comes to my mind, another famous Kingfish was the character Kingfish on Amos and Andy. Uh, okay, yes. And uh, we are told, or I read this uh, fairly recently somehow, that uh, they, that is uh, Freeman Gosden and the other guy who were Amos and Andy and who wrote their own stuff, uh, dreamed up the character of the Kingfish and chose that name, uh, learned that name from the public career of Huey Long. Huh. Uh, so that, well, yeah, that would have been, yeah. There's a backwards I'm trying, I'm trying to go back in the time, and that would have, yeah, that would have been right after, his, his assassination was 35, so. And Amos and Andy, as a radio program, 15 minutes every night uh, in the original form, flourished uh, through the 1930s, began, in fact, in the 1920s. Uh, and the Kingfish became a character visible and audible on that program in the late 1930s and persisted uh, even in its uh, television form until finally... Everybody went away. You know what else is fascinating about Huey Long is um, is when he he was the governor of Louisiana and he ran for the United States Senate. So Oscar Allen succeeded him as governor of Louisiana, mm -hmm. and Oscar Allen was more or less kind of um, was more or less kind, was more or less his um, was more was more was more or less his um, his 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 puppet, I guess. And one thing that happened was they suppose the story goes, and this is this could be apocryphal, I don't know, but that every time a piece of legislation or any sort of piece of paper would go and get on Oscar Allen's desk, he was ordered to sign it. 
So a leaf came in the door one time. It came out the came out into the window one time, and Oscar Allen signed it. Uh, I, I'm sure that's true. As a matter of fact, I got a great political quotation, which I think is not in your book. Okay. I learned it from a congressman from down in Louisiana, who was with me one night on a radio program, uh, and it goes to Earl Long, yes. uh, Huey's brother, who also served later as governor of Louisiana, and Earl Long was famous down there for having said. When I die, if I die, bury me in Louisiana, so I can go on enjoying the the the, the political life. I think he said in Saint at Saint Martin's Parish. In I I I I, I, I yes I know that. Um, is I know it in that, your, Is it in your book? Uh, I believe it is. Let me see. Cause well, I, no, I missed it. I know he was governor. I believe from 1939 to 1940. Let me uh-huh. see, let me see if I have that quote in there. That sounds familiar. I thought it was Saint Martin's. St. Parish, but let me see. You have it, but attributed to somebody else, I think, actually. Oh, really? Okay. I ran across it, yeah. Well, uh, this is Earl Long. Earl Long, okay. I... Be that as it may, dashing forward, onward and upward, or sideways, or what have you. Most of these, you agree, are uh, quotations that the the person being quoted might be embarrassed by, at least wouldn't be too happy to see anthologized in this book. Yes, absolutely. Depending, I guess, on their um, on their sense of humor. Yeah, <laughs> some had uh, that self-deprecating uh, sense of humor that I mentioned earlier with regard to JFK. What was his best self-deprecating comment? Do you remember? Uh, well, I think I mean the best one I've I've heard was in 1960. Of course, there was the um, there was speculation that his father was the one that was you know was that this, that his father was kind of the puppeteer and, and that he was really financing the campaign. And one time Kennedy said, you know, I got a letter from my father. Something to the order of this. He said, you know, I got a letter from my father the other day. He said, you know, that you better not win by too much. God, he's, I'm not going to pay for a landslide. Yeah. Um, then the other one I liked was uh, I liked when um, he was talking about his brother Ted Kennedy. Remember when Kennedy became president? They had a stand-in, um, Senator Smith, who, stand, who essentially, Foster Furkelow, who was the governor of Massachusetts, appointed a stand-in until Ted, until they had an election in which Ted Kennedy, who would be 30 years old at the time, would be able to essentially succeed John F. Kennedy. So when he was running, um, John F. Kennedy made a joke about him. He said, um, you know, it's been very hard for John F., for my brother to get out of my shadow. So he decided to change his name to uh, Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Now, I direct you now, sir, to page 72. Of your, okay. of your volume, The Political Bible of Humorous Quotations from American Politics. Okay. And right down there, again, the bottom of the first column is a wonderful entry. Would you read that one, please? The bottom of the first column? Yeah. Okay. That's uh, Ronald Reagan. It says, in, in acting, is acting a prerequisite to the presidency? During the 1980 presidential campaign, a reporter asked Republican presidential nominee Ronald Reagan, how can an actor run for president? Reagan responded, how can an actor not, how can a president not be an actor? Which is a wonderful, a very true line, as a matter of fact. It, it's like when, uh, when they asked him, you know, um, how, how are you, what kind of a, after he, the day, I think it was the day after he was elected governor of California in 1966, and someone said, what kind of a governor will you be? He said, I don't know, I've never played a governor. Yes. <laughs> there's, a, there's another story, I wonder if it's in your book, I didn't encounter it. Um, it's Jack Warner and somebody else talking about Reagan when, Reagan is announcing for governor, uh, and Warner. I don't think so. And Warner is reported to have said, "No, no, that that's not quite right. No, no. Um, uh, let me see. Um, George Murphy for governor, and Ronald Reagan for best friend. Because <laughs> George Murphy had already been, who was a song and dance man in Hollywood, 
in the movies had already been a, a senator uh, of the United States. He was the first guy from the American Congress, I think, to go uh, uh, to come from the movies, but yes. by no means the last. Uh, but Reagan, Warner was saying, didn't quite have the qualities uh, of governor, uh, but he should. No, no, he didn't say George Murphy. He said, no, 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 Jimmy Stewart as governor, Ronald Reagan as best friend. That was the line. Um, right next to him on the same page, we have a fellow whom I met at the time he was running for president. Oh, um, and, George Wallace. Uh, George, uh, George Dukakis, Michael Dukakis, not George Wallace. Um, uh, Michael Dukakis. Didn't he, did he run against Reagan or did he run later? He, what, what page is this? Uh, same page, uh, 72. Okay, yeah, no, actually, Michael Dukakis ran in 1988 against George H.W. Bush. There we go. Okay, read that one anyway, the Dukakis entry. Yes, it says, Duke takes on Mitt. This is interesting. In a, in a 2012 forum with students at the University of California at Davis, former Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis did not have any kind words to say about Mitt Romney, one of his gubernatorial predecessors, who is a Republican presidential nominee. Dukakis said of Romney, he's smart, he's slick, he's a fraud, as simple as that. <laughs> I think he'd be a disaster in the White House. I'm trying to be as subtle as I possibly can here. <laughs> um, as I said, yes, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Dukakis, of course, was governor. He was actually, he came in in 74, in, in uh, 75, served a four-year term, then he lost to Ed King in 1979. This is governor of Massachusetts, yeah. Yes, in 1978, who actually was kind of a weird, a weird um, circumstance where Ed King, who was running as a very conservative Democrat, actually defeated Dukakis. Dakakis then came back and ran in uh, 82 and was, and was elected, and then was elected again in 86. And then he ran for president, of course, in 1988. And at the end of the, after the Democratic convention in the summer of 1988, he actually had a 17-point lead, which eventually he yep. blew in part the uh, George H.W. Bush campaign. It was really masterful in terms of um, tethering Dukakis to kind of to the ACLU, which is unpopular, certainly to Harvard University, which is very unpopular. After the man that he led out of prison who then killed a number of people. We had Willie Horton, who went down to yeah. uh, Maryland, and um, yes, and, um, and he was uh, he was on a furlough program, which actually was begun by Dukakis's uh, Republican predecessor. And another death Sorry. blow to to, to uh, Michael Dukakis's campaign was the U.S. Army uh, inadvertently. Uh, Do you remember why and how? Yes, yes, he was, and I believe it was actually Senator Sam Nunn who had this idea that they would put him in a tank. <laughs> Yes. And you really have to take a look at this if you don't remember it. He's essentially sitting there in a tank. The helmet's too big for him, and he's you know he's trying to play GI Joe or something. And it was just um, it was just really an amazing. It was one a of the greatest political gas in American history. It was ludicrous that everybody laughed, and uh, that really finally did him in. It was the quietus, so to speak, the last uh, the last dagger into his heart. That's and, a good way. Of, that's that's how I'm going to explain it from next to quietus. I think that's a great definition yes. of it. All yes. right, uh, and here's. Something that needs defining as well. A pause for commercials. That's what happens right now. And then directly back to uh, to Rich Rubino, author of The Political Bible of Humorous Quotations. And right back to Rick Rubino, hostman, Rich Rubino, I should say, hostman supreme. This is about your third or fourth book of quotations, is it? Uh, it's not well. My first book was called. Uh, and this is actually what kind of inspiring to write. This one was about the political bible of little known facts in American politics. That's things that perhaps um, are kind of are kind of obscured. Like the perfect example would be that um, under the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union, which of course is the precursor to the United States Constitution, the system we currently live under. 
Um, they actually had an office. It was called the Office of President. The, it was called the Office of Congress. The, the Office of President um, assembled, for example. And one of the presidents was uh, John Han- was John Hanson. So theoretically, you could make the case that John Hanson was actually the first president, yeah, not the first yeah. president of the United States, but the first president of Congress assembled. That's one of those. That was the one that I always use. It kind of stands out. But other ones, like for example, that when Bill Clinton was governor, he was. Um, he he made only thirty five thousand dollars a year, which was actually less than any other governor in the country. Um, that type of thing, or um, perhaps that Vermont and New Hampshire are the only states where the governor is up for reelection not every four years, but every two years. Still, mm-hmm. used to be a lot of states were up every one year. Or that five Idaho governors were born in Iowa. Um, you know, a lot of those kind of kind of obscure type of um, facts. Or that remember uh, Justice David Souter. Remember, he doesn't. He never owned a uh, computer. Uh, a computer and answering machine or television set, and Ralph Nader still uses a uh, still uses a black and white television. So those were those types of things that were kind of obscure. I put in that book, and then I wrote another book called um, "Make Every Vote Equal," a case for essentially it was a case for the National Popular Vote Plan, which is a proposal by uh, John Causa, who's a professor of computer science in California, which would inst- which essentially would. It's, and then it's called the national popular vote. Each state would award their electoral vote to the person who wins the national popular vote. So essentially, at least from my side of it, you wouldn't have a scenario where voters in Ohio, Florida, and New Hampshire are deciding the elections, whereas voters in you know 70% of the country are just sitting on the electoral sidelines watching as candidates sometimes even sometimes just kind of you know take their plane from Ohio to Florida to New Hampshire to New Mexico into about 10 really showdowns. Apart out. from these books that you've done, you also or a regular writer for the Huffington Post, where essentially yes. you write about presidential politics, I gather. Yes, I do. I try to do. I try to be as analytical as opposed to ideological as possible. Mm-hmm. On that, um, I try to kind of. I try to use some historical knowledge, and I try to compare what's going on now. For example, um, well, for example, my latest article, I talk about uh, Joe, the, Joe Biden. There was a possibility, at least there was speculation, that he had met with Elizabeth Warren. So the possibility of a, a Biden-Warren ticket. And I was talking about. The three examples that I could think of, at least in recent history, where a presidential candidate chose his running mate prior to the nomination. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one was actually in 1952. That's, this was that heated uh, rivalry between Robert Taft and Dwight Eisenhower. Of course, Harold Stassen was in earlier, but he later threw his support to Eisenhower. And in that race, uh, Robert Taft was actually persuaded General Douglas MacArthur to become his running mate should he receive the nomination. It's interesting because he said that um, MacArthur, it was actually kind of backfired on him because MacArthur, of course, when, you know, he was very popular with the Republican Party, particularly because he had um, been fired by Harry Truman, who was a Democratic president who was very unpopular at the time, especially in the Republican Party. So he persuaded MacArthur, and a lot there was a movement to get, get MacArthur actually to the top of the ticket instead of uh, Taft, who was a little, who wasn't, who didn't have, who was a little bit more cerebral and didn't have kind of the charisma that MacArthur had. So they, so they, so what Taft said was, he said, okay, let's go in the first ballot, and after the first ballot. Um, you know, if I lose in the first ballot, I'll talk to, I'll talk, if I, you know, in other words, if I don't assume that no one actually gets a majority, then we'll talk to, to MacArthur about perhaps putting him on the top of the ticket. But of course, it never went that that far because Eisenhower surprised him and actually won on the first ballot. Yeah. That was the first example that I used. The second example was, you remember in 1976, Ronald Reagan, um, this was the Reagan-Ford race, and Reagan was essentially the conservative candidate that year, and Ford was seen as kind of the establishment candidate. And you were coming to the convention, it was very, very close. So Reagan kind of took a political gamble and chose uh, Richard Schweitzer, the very liberal senator from Pennsylvania, and said, this is going to be my running mate if you elect me. Um, it actually backfired on him because Reagan, of course, was trying to kind of garner some moderate support. The moderates, 
um, didn't really, very few moderates left board and went over to Reagan. But on the other side, um, Jesse Helms, who was a United States senator from North Carolina and actually supported him in North Carolina, the first primary he won that year, um, tried to persuade Senator Buckley, Senator James Buckley, Bill Buckley's brother uh, from New York, the conservative senator, to actually run against him in the uh, to try to run against to put his name on, on essentially to run against him on the uh, at the convention, and um, you know eventually Reagan eventually lost it anyways and Ford won, but it kind of it it made him a little less popular with the conservatives. And the third example, most recently, which backfired was remember when Jerry Brown ran against Bill Clinton in '92, uh, and by the time he got to the New York primary, Paul Songus was running too, by the way, but Songus had suspended his campaign; he had not officially um, dropped out of the race. You know, he said, you know, he may come essentially giving him the possibility to make him in later on. And Jerry Brown announced that his running mate would be Jesse Jackson. He had actually announced this when he was very, da- very um, low in the polls, but eventually it became down to the point where Clinton and Brown were the only active major candidates in the race. And it hurt him in New York because, remember, when Jackson was running for president in 1984, he had made an offhand remark. The he Jaime, that's the, that's the Jaime Town quotation, yeah. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. this really hurt him, in the, particularly in New York City. And, of course. Um, he would go and he would speak to certain crowds, and he would often be heckled because of it. And Clinton essentially won. Um, Clinton won essentially what Jerry Jerry Brown actually tied Clinton with the African American vote, which he was trying to get. But with the Jewish vote, it was lopsided for Bill Clinton. And after after New York, Jerry Brown never won a single primary, and Clinton coached the nomination. So it really it may have it may it may have you know it was, it was kind of a hail mary pass when Jerry Brown was one of six or seven candidates. But once mm-hmm. the time came when he was actually had a legitimate chance of winning that could have been you know really the dagger through his heart i'm taking you back to the book now and yes. indeed back to the very same page where we began 24 there's yes. really an astonishing quotation right there from lady bird johnson and yes. i want you to just uh, read that um and we'll discuss it briefly yes it's content with the content with the content with the situation in a 1982 interview, former First Lady Lady Bird Johnson was asked by Louis Randolph, who was the co-producer of an NBC miniseries, LBJ, the early years, which is great, by the way, about the sexual affairs of her husband, Lyndon B. Johnson. Mrs. Johnson answered, you have to understand, my husband loved people, all people, and half of the people in the world were women. <laughs> that's, um, I guess, I don't know if that's rationalization, but he, she certainly was aware of well, her uh, husband. She's one of those presidential wives, and we've had a number of them in recent years, who simply tolerated and looked the other way uh, with regard to the extramarital affairs of her husband, the president. That's certainly true of uh, Jacqueline Kennedy. It was certainly true of Lady Bird Johnson. Oh, um, it is, uh, I think, uh, clearly and widely understood to be equally true for um, uh, for uh, Mrs. Clinton, Mrs. Clinton, right? Who aspires all the same to be president? Uh, I guess that's the way the game is played, or the, at least there are women who are willing to play that game. Uh, and uh, it's just amazing. I don't know. To, speaking of Jews and Jews in New York, I'm a New York Jew, and yep. one uh, one widely usable Jewish word or Yiddish word is chutzpah, which means or weaning audacity, and it's a Totally chutzpahed question to have put to Lady Bird Johnson. I would never. I'm sure you would never have asked her. How do you account for all of your husband's affairs? No, but, absolutely. Especially someone like her who was not. I mean, she was a she was political in the sense of you know billboards. But she was very much a, a Southern lady. It was just unification. Really, but she wasn't yeah. really a controversial. She was. She certainly was not a vituperative figure. It was, it's an incre- incredible quotation and incredible moment of interview. I, I direct you now, sir, to page seventy-eight. And on page 78, um, the yep. uh, one I have in mind is 
Uh, Joe Biden. Yes, um, yes. Just, uh, I'll leave that one to you. Yes, it says Indian throw support to Biden. Remember, Joe Biden, one thing that Joe Biden has that is that he's very off the cuff. He does not, um, he's not reading from a script. And we know this. Here's an example. While exploring a presidential run in 2006, then U.S. Senator Joe Biden, Democrat of Delaware, was approached by an Indian American who informed Biden that he was supporting him. Biden answered, in Delaware, the largest growth in population is Indian Americans moving from India. You cannot go to a 7-Eleven or a Dunkin' Donuts unless you have a slight Indian accent. I'm not joking. Yeah. Um, this, this is something I find amazing about Joe Biden. This is somebody who was elected to the United States Senate when he was 29 years old. He turned 30 before he was inaugurated, which is, of course, the year when you're eligible to um, serve in the Senate. And for all those years in the United States Senate, he's never learned Senatees, kind of. He's never measured himself. He makes a lot of mistakes. And part of the reason I think he makes a lot of mistakes is that when he talks, he doesn't go through any sort of a filter, which is very, very rare. And I think that this, I think that in many respects, 1988, remember, he was running, and then remember there was actually a plagiarism scandal where they found out that Neil Canuck was a Labor Party leader. He had taken some parts of his speech mm -hmm. and used it as his own. And it was, I believe, it was uh, John Sasser who was working at a caucus campaign that exposed this. This was before, you know, the Internet when people can expose it like that. Um, that may have been his time. He ran again in 2008, and that was not his time. In 2008, people were looking for a fresh face, a new face kind of the Democratic Party, and he was seen as the establishment. But it's interesting because in 2016, people are looking for somebody who is more um, who is more candid, I think. They're looking for somebody, certainly you see on the Republican side with Donald Trump, somebody who doesn't kind of who doesn't, who isn't measuring everything that they're saying. And in that respect, if politics is all about timing, then this, you know, certainly would be his last shot. But certainly this would be a better election for Joe Biden than certainly the first two elections that he had um, if he does choose to run. But, of course, Bernie Sanders is in that same plane, though, because Bernie Sanders is also has the reputation of being a very candid, um, of being a candid spokesman for his views as well. But, I mean, Joe Biden, I mean, people say, you know, how did he just say that? And I think part of it is that he doesn't go through a filter. Um, here's an interesting and strange moment in American politics. We go now to page 91. Yes. And the entry on Senator Eagleton's secret statements. Yes. Yes. It's, it's, it's a, longer, a longer entry, but there's an awful lot wrapped up in it. Go ahead. Yes, this is really interesting. In 1972, the liberal insurgent U.S. Senator George McGovern, Democrat from South Dakota, was winning vital Democratic presidential primaries. Many establishment Democrats were worried that if McGovern garnered the nomination, his liberal views would lead to an electoral landslide for Republican President Richard Nixon. The, this would bring other Democrats all down with him. One of MacArthur's Senate colleagues, Thomas Eagleton, who is from Missouri, revealed to columnist Robert Novak, the late Robert Novak now, as an undisclosed source. He said, the people don't know McGovern is for amnesty, abortion, and legalization of pot. Once middle America, once Catholic, Middle America in particular, finds this out, he's dead. Amnesty, acid, and abortion. Once McGovern governed the nomination, his opponents called McGovern the candidate of amnesty, acid, and abortion. Without knowing that Eagleton was the originator of the quote, McGovern, then, McGovern actually selected Eagleton to be his running mate that year. Of course, after 18 days on the ticket, McGovern bowed to public pressure to dump Eagleton, which was revealed that Eagleton had been through electroshock therapy to cure his bout of clinical depression. Nixon would go on to trounce McGovern in the general election. And Novak did not reveal the source of that quote until 2008, after Eagleton's death. 
So just think about the scenario here. McGovern selecting Eagleton to be his running mate, and Eagleton was the um, purveyor of a slogan that was used by his opponents against him. And during that you know span, that 18 day span when they were essentially running mates, he didn't know where that actually came from. It actually came from his running mate. <laughs> well, their campaign was a comedy of errors from the very beginning, and by very beginning I mean the night that McGovern was uh, nominated. Uh, yes. When his acceptance speech, I guess it wasn't the night he was nominated, but the night that he gave his acceptance speech, ran at, I think, about 3 a.m. in the morning, New York time. I think he called it that. He said, "He said thanks for coming to our early to our early Sunday morning service, yes. <laughs> church service, or something like that. It was Whoever was running the Democratic convention did not have a very good sense of timing, to say the least. No, that was really, it was really a hopeless effort. I mean, McGovern, he wanted uh, he wanted Ted Kennedy to be his running mate. Ted Kennedy wouldn't do it. He, then he wanted Hubert Humphrey to be his running mate. Hubert Humphrey wouldn't do it. Eventually, he gets down to um, to Senator Eagleton, but he was so far down in the polls. And remember, this was, it's actually very similar to what's going on right now. McGovern was really an insurgent. At the beginning, it was Ed Muskie was the establishment candidate. Mm-hmm. He, had, he had a lot of... Um, Lyndon Johnson was supposedly secretly for him. When Ed Muskie faltered, Hubert Humphrey became the establishment candidate. But the problem with both of them is that they, is their past support for the Vietnam War, which the Democratic Party became almost a litmus test issue. Now, McGovern has voted for the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution in 64, but he had apologized for that. Humphrey had actually apologized for his past support for the Vietnam War and during the Johnson administration, but that was, of course, what, one of the reasons why um, – he had why he was challenged for the nomination when he did run in '68 by Eugene McCarthy and then later Bobby Kennedy. But when he was running in 1972, it became a huge issue. He so McGovern's slogan that year was "Right from the start" to say that you know I was right from the start. I was against Vietnam. He well, he did vote for the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, but of course he was a huge critic of the Johnson administration from basically '65 on. And McGovern did win that nomination as an anti-war candidate. Um, he was ve- he was very un- he was very unpopular um, with the rest of the country. I think Nixon that year won like ninety four percent of the Republican vote, sixty six percent of the Independent vote, and forty two percent of the Democratic vote that year. And you had a lot of uh, Democratic Democrat Republicans Democrats for Nixon that year. One of them being uh, John Conley, the governor of Texas, who later became uh, who later became the uh, Treasury Secretary. But he was it's very similar. Him and Barry Goldwater were very good friends in the Senate. And they had one thing in common. Both of them run, ran as insurgents and beat the establishment, and be, neither of them really tried to moderate their views in the general election. Goldwater won six states when he ran, and McGovern won one state, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, in the District of Columbia when he ran. So <laughs> I guess it really it, it shows in a sense that when the, when, the, when the establishment is beaten and an insurgent wins, and I don't know if this is a lesson for Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, in the general election, um, it's very hard for them to pick up support outside of either the left wing or the or the right wing. Now, here's an easy quiz question for you: um, <clears throat> Who in Chicago radio is famous for saying it's time to stop for some commercials? You, right? <laughs> and right back to Rich Rubino as we draw from the political bible of humorous quotations from American politics. By the way, do you know the total number of quotations here? Uh, I don't know the exact number, but I would uh, my. My best estimation would be about a couple thousand. It's wonderful to browse in. I've had great fun just poking around in it. Here's oh, something you. that interested and amused me, and I remembered it uh, only because you have it. Again, on the first column of um, the page, the page being 82, and yes. down at the bottom of page 82 is something that I want you to read instantly. Yes, this is uh, the bottom right? The bottom left. Oh, the bottom left. Oh, okay, yes, yes. Small town mayor takes on community organizer. 
and most of your listeners remember this, in her 2008 speech accepting the Republican nomination for vice president, Sarah Palin referred to her days as mayor of Wasilla, Alaska, and compared this experience with Democratic presidential nominee Barack Obama's days as a community organizer. Palin said sarcastically, I guess a small-town mayor is sort of like a community organizer, except you have actual responsibilities. (laughs) (laughs) That was a withering and very, very effective blow. Why did the press have such a heyday in trying to show her up as as ignorant and uninformed? She's Uh not that, uh, though uh, uh, they all have holes in their heads over something or other, but uh, she's demonstrated that she's really a very good politically uh, sharp rhetorician when she gets uh, going on one of her non-presidential speeches, one of her non-candidate speeches. But what happened to her? During the campaign itself. Yeah, well, first of all, the fact we go back a little ways, McCain, I mean, this was a year when you had, remember, George W. Bush had very low approval ratings in the 20s. And it really, McCain really needed a Hail Mary. He could have chosen a more establishment person like a Tim Pawlenty or a uh, Mitt Romney, but he chose the governor of Alaska, who I, my guess is most people in the press had not heard of. Now, she had a 90% job approval rating as governor. She was very popular there. McCain was trying to show himself as a reformer, and he wanted a reformer on the ticket. And she was was female, which was obviously important to him. Yes, she was female indeed, absolutely. Um, And I think that he he wanted, so he went for the Hail Mary. And that's the first, I I remember even Barack Obama, when they first, when they went to him and told him that John McCain's nominee, she said, well, I don't know much about her or something like me. Everyone was caught off guard by it, because very few people expected this very obscure governor who had literally just been elected um, a year a year and a half earlier, beating the incumbent governor, Frank Murkowski. Um, I think part of it was there was that interview she did with Katie Couric, and they asked her what newspaper she read. Yeah. And she, she she was kind of, she was a little bit evasive. She says, oh, I read all of them here in Alaska, and they couldn't pin her down on one specific one. So that was what I think kind of began that whole, um, the whole process of kind of going after her a little bit. Also, I think because they real they realized that this is somebody who really had never been involved in national politics. Um, I don't know how many actual you know, I mean outside of you know McCain, outside of I think a national governors association meeting where McCain spoke to her for 15 minutes. They hadn't met until this whole process for choosing a running mate began. It was just a really um, an, it was a, just an unbelievable. I, I guess I don't know if Atlantis is the right word, but you're right. She is a very good rhetorician, but uh, she also she's very good at uh, speaking to her base. And it's funny because when she was governor in Alaska, she actually did have some alliances with Democrats. She wasn't necessarily this partisan figure that I think we think of her today as. But ever since she ran, ever since she ran as McCain's running mate, she's been moving further to the right in terms of, and that her main constituency is now kind of the Tea Party constituency. Oh, definitely, but, yes. But um, I think when when he chose her at the time, I mean, remember she did have a ninety percent job approval rating. Now, granted, Alaska is a predominantly a Republican state, but there were a lot of Democrats who liked her because she was a reformer, because she was trying to reform the, uh, the she was trying to reform the um, the state from you know past Repub- from from the uh, indiscretions of the past. Well, Republican I think she threw, she threw away a future political career by resigning the As Alaska governor, governorship right. after she uh, uh, after they lost. Uh, in the presidential election. That just was the wrong thing to do. And since then, I guess she's cleaned up and made a lot of money um, in um, uh, various forms. And she's also remained loyally, extremely right-wing. And uh, in fact, uh, she says a lot that I approve of, but uh, she is no longer a calculable uh, asset to uh, even uh, quite conservative Republicans uh, as a potential candidate. So I guess she's still a sought-after endorser, but she hasn't yet endorsed Donald Trump, has she? No.
No, she's kind of she's hinted that she likes Donald Trump and that she likes Ted Cruz, which kind of I guess shows where her ideology yeah. um, has gone in many respects. It's interesting because in Alaska, in Alaska, I mean, she you know in terms of raising, she's a favorite, for example, raising taxes on oil companies. She was not this. She really was not this partisan ideological figure that I think most Americans think of her now. But I think she kind of saw you know this is where. This is where essentially her constituency could be. So she's since moved to the right, and you know certainly m- many parts of the country, I would suspect, would n- they would n- most Republicans would not want her campaigning with her. But certainly, if you're running in places like um, you know her endorsement would be very coveted. For example, if you're running for you know governor of Texas or governor of Alabama, but certainly if you're running for governor of Illinois or Massachusetts or Maine, you know you'd want her to stay out because she's very popular with a very with a very uh, small constituency, which is essentially conservative Republican, so she no longer has any real crossover appeal in terms of the country, but she's a hero to a certain group in, the, in this country. Here's a moment of confrontation between a president and a leading newsman, as he was at the time. I take you to um, page 35, again, bottom left. I seem to favor the bottom left when it comes to choosing these. We mostly have we have three or four items on each page. This is the one... At the bottom left of 35. Yes, I refer to this one as Nixon v. Rather. Of course, Dan Rather. At a 1972 press conference during the Watergate affair. 1974. 74, I'm sorry. Great. Which was held in front of in front of an audience in Houston, Texas. CBS White House correspondent Dan Rather said, Thank you, Mr. President. Dan Rather News. And the crowd, of course, reacted with a mix of cheers and boos. Nixon then, President Richard M. Nixon joked, Are you running for something? Rather looked and retorted, No, sir. Are you? <laughs> and of course, that was the year when uh, Nixon when uh, Nixon had to resign. Yes, indeed. Um, is it true that Nixon, um, on that resignation, then very quickly <clears throat> went um, uh, quite seriously ill? I believe it was with phlebitis or something of the yes. sort. But that it was expected that it was thought he was in danger of losing his life. Was actually, and it's interesting because Gerald Ford that year was running, um, was essentially going. This is 1974 now, a few months after he had resigned in August. So it was by by about late October, Ford was out campaigning, trying to save Republican seats. That was not a good year for Republicans. And he actually, there was some controversy about whether he should visit Richard Nixon in the hospital. Nixon was, of course, a very unpopular figure, but he actually did go to California and he visited Nixon in the hospital at the time. And um, Nixon said, "You know, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate this." But yes, that's true. He would. He became very sick. He became um, very depressed. And it's amazing the way that later in life he was able to really kind of um, resuscitate his standing to the point that in when that when he you know, when he died he had um, Bob Dole, he had Bill Clinton, um, he had Pete Wilson all speaking at his funeral. And uh, Richard Nixon actually, Bill Clinton was the first president who I believe actually invited him back to the White House for a standalone uh, meeting. And Nixon had actually visited Russia and gave him a. Um, in the sent a six-page letter that he'd written about his kind of his views on Russia, and when he died, when Richard Nixon died, Bill Clinton later said that it was like it, that Nixon dying was about the equivalent of his mother dying. That he felt the same way, which is really mm-hmm. interesting because Clinton, when he ran, first of all, when Clinton ran for Congress in 1974 um, against Neil Hammersmith in the in the third uh, congressional district of Arkansas. He was running essentially against Nixon more than he was running against Hammersmith, saying that Nixon should resign. He came very close to winning that election, and Hillary Clinton, of course, was on the white was on the uh, the Whitewater uh, Freudian slip was on the Watergate committee. Of course, she was eventually she was fired from that. But as a 27 year old, but the Clintons actually landed up having a very good relationship uh, with the Nixons. But it, it, you're right; he was you know essentially he was very close to death's door, I believe, and he did at that time right after 
um, you know, after having been, the, been the, basically the only president ever to have to resign um, from office. We've got only about a minute and a half or two minutes left. <clears throat> um, something just suddenly occurs to me. One of the greatest lines ever spoken by a president was spoken by Jerry Ford uh, right after Nixon's resignation and Ford becomes president by virtue of being the appointed vice president. Um, and he assures the country that um, I am a Ford, not a Lincoln. Uh, yes. Yes. Who, who crafted that line for him? Um, I, I don't know who crafted it. I'm thinking maybe Ron Neston um, may have been the one who crafted it. The one I thought you were going to go was our long national nightmare is over. Yeah, well, it was part of the same speech, to be sure. Yeah. That's the one I, the, the other one I liked to him was one time was he was, um, and I'll just end with this, um, he, he, his speechwriters liked him to talk with emphasis. So they would write in parentheses yes. on one of his speeches with emphasis. So one time Ford said, was giving a speech, he said, I say to you, this is nonsense, with emphasis. Yes. <laughs> uh, you, had, you had a lot of fun putting this all together, I gather. Absolutely. I absolutely love um, politics, and I certainly love the humor, especially mostly the inadvertent political humor, which is probably about 70% of the books. Is you know Usually when they, make it, when, they, when they make a joke on purpose, it's not as funny as when they make a joke by mistake. And they all do, sooner or later. Usually. Absolutely. You can be, you can be if, you're not, if you're perfect 99% of the time, there's going to be that 1% of the time where you're going to say something off-kilter, or maybe you don't even realize you're saying it off-kilter, and eventually, you know, people are going to, people are going to um, find out. And it's just like when, remember, George Allen was running for the Senate in 2006, he was thinking of running for president in 2008. He points out to a staffer for Jim Webb, who was the Democratic proponent, he, he called him um, the term, he said, look at Macaco over there. Macaca, of course, was an Indian, was a term, was a, um, a racist word against Indians. And then that became a huge issue in that campaign. George Allen loses his reelection campaign, and he doesn't, he's not, no longer a potential candidate for president in 2008, and he's essentially out of politics. I um, made a mistake. I said we only had a minute or two left. I was wrong. We oh. have, at this very moment, uh, let me see, it's 4.54. We go off at, at two, two and a half minutes. Oh, let, let me quickly ask you um, about the current um, presidential campaign, which has, of course, already begun. Uh, oh, yes. What interesting lines or anecdotes do you have from the present moment, or the uh, well, almost present moment? And well, you've got course, to do it within the space of a minute. Yes, oh, okay. Of course, there's nothing really um, in the book about about any of the, uh, no. cur- any of the current candidates. This will be in your next book. I think the most fascinating thing, at least from my perspective, was when Lincoln Chafee announced his presidential candidacy, Lincoln Chafee, the former senator, former governor of Rhode Island, one of the lines in there he talked about was they said, and it's time to come back to the metric system. Now, this is a long speech. He said a lot of other things in there, but that's the one thing people pointed out and said, essentially, you know, this guy wants to go back to the metric system. Who's even thinking about the metric system? It was one line in a speech that just shows you that you really have to be careful what you, you know, what you say in terms of if you come up with something that's just kind of one thing that's kind of outlandish, people are going to really focus on that. And now Lincoln Shavey, the first thing I think people think of is the metric system guy. <laughs> I mean, he's had a lot of other things to say. He talked about foreign policy, domestic policy, but all people remembered is the metric system. Who strikes you as just basically a bad campaigner? A bad campaigner? Uh, well, I mean, I would say that certainly uh, Rick Perry would be one. You know, just the fact Poor that Rick. Yeah. anybody who would, you know, this is a good guy, the longest serving governor of the second most populated state in the country. And he just had to drop out with 1% in the polls. It's absolutely amazing um, that he was that far, that just the fact that he was that far down when he had that, with, with the experience and with the name recognition he had. Another one would be George Pataki because. There is, a, there is a definite New Hampshire. There are a lot of pro-choice, pro-gay marriage Republicans, and Pataki is the only major Republican candidate who is, pro, who is pro-choice and, pro, and pro-gay marriage, and he's still getting 0% in the polls. 
Now, he's obviously doing something seriously wrong here, and this is, by the way, a three-term governor of the fourth most populated yeah. state in the country, and he's at 0% in the polls, you know, compare, competing with uh, Lindsey Graham and uh, and Lindsey Graham and Jim Gilmore. I'm out of time. Tell, tell me in 10 seconds, what's his mistake? I think his mistake is that he's not... Um, is that he's not going directly to the people that he should be talking to and say, look, I'm the only pro-choice, pro-gay marriage Republican. Yeah. I'm a Rockefeller Republican. I'm a New Hampshire Republican. No one else is in, no one else is in my spear. Riz Rubino, we have to run, but I thank you very much for a most interesting uh, one hour, and we'll be back with the next guest after this. Mm-hmm. 